0: Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. Before we get started, I want to just say congratulations to our graduating seniors. That's a huge accomplishment. Well done. Really proud of you. And uh, we wanted to make a way available for you to keep in touch with us. Trey Corey, our college pastor, set this up. Uh, You can pull out your phone and text alumni to 95577 and then just put in your your name and your email. And we can send you... uh, you know, links to resources that we have online, that kind of thing, but also we are continuously working on setting up networks uh, throughout the U.S. and really throughout the world, and so uh, if you go someplace and you want to get connected with uh, other Aggies and find a way to get connected to a church, uh, we're trying to provide those resources, or maybe you will go a place that Aggies have never gone before, and you can be that link back, so uh, please stay in touch with us, Uh, stay connected, here's one of the ways that you can do that. I was trying to think through how I wanted to begin this morning and I thought of, uh, of an illustration. You know that I love, um, I love river rafting and my favorite river rafting trips are the ones where they give you a paddle. right? right, I've been on trips where it's just the guide, only the guide has the paddles, but I like the ones where I feel like I'm a, really a participant. And I realized having been on several of these that there's, there's not actually a lot of good that you can do. You can do a little bit of harm, not a lot of good, but it feels like you're part of, of the show, right? And so I like those trips better. But what I came to realize is that even the guide doesn't have complete control. There are things that the guide can't do. God can't stop the raft in the middle of the river. God can't turn that raft around and paddle upriver. When that river is, is raging downstream, it's going downstream, and there is nothing that you can do to stop that. And I thought that's really a good analogy for God's plan for human history it started before we got on the river it's going to continue after we get off the river it's moving in direction that god has determined and we can try to fight against it and get dumped in the cold water or we can go with that flow and really enjoy uh, the thrill of moving with god and working with god in accomplishing his will in human history and this little section of river that we are on right now the new testament calls the church it's the church what is the church? What is the church? You got up this morning, alarm went off, and you thought to yourself, "What? I need to go to church, right? So you came to the church. So the church is what? Church is this building, 700 Anderson? Or maybe maybe there's two churches, right? Because we have two sites. So it's here at 700 Anderson, but then there's also one on William D. Fitch, but we'd say, no, we need to include a few other buildings, right? The buildings of the Baptists and the Methodists and Presbyterians at least, but sometimes it's hard to figure out who should we include and who do we need to say, no, they're not part of our club because we do kind of feel compelled, right, to say who's in and who's out of the church. I remember one night I, I got... Stuck filling a prescription It was late at night There was only one pharmacy still open It was down in Bryan So I was standing there Waiting for my prescription to get refilled I began talking with this gentleman Who had He had just moved into town To help plant a church And so we're talking about His new church plan. At one point I said So you know What's the background of of your church Are you affiliated with a certain denomination And he stopped and said We're not a denomination We are the church (laughs) I thought Oh, then what are me and my friends doing? (laughs) Well, you know, shouldn't we also be included in this thing called the church? This morning, we're going to look at that question. What is the church? It's actually one of the biggest questions that the early church had. What is the church? And how does the church fit with the Old Testament? Specifically, how does the church fit with what we've been studying in the book of Genesis? So I want you to read with me. Beginning in Ephesians chapter 3, as we begin to answer that question, verse 1, Paul wrote, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles The unfathomable riches of Christ, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Three times in that paragraph, Paul says, We are a mystery were a mystery now revealed. And Paul defines a mystery two places in the paragraph. Verse five, he says, in other generations, this was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Verse nine, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. Paul says a mystery is this. It's something that was not revealed in the Old Testament, but now has, it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. Not known, now known. It is a mystery. Now, there are two implications of that. First, there is no church in the Old Testament, and we're not the Israel of the New Testament. We're not Israel, and Israel was not the church. How do we know that? Because Israel was revealed in the Old Testament was it not? Well, actually, that's most of what the Old Testament is about. It's about the creation, the birth, the formation, the history, and even the future of Israel. But Paul says the church wasn't revealed beforehand. It wasn't revealed to those prophets. Now it has been revealed. So we can look to the Old Testament and say, where is the church? Let's look for the church. But the church is not there because the church was a mystery. Paul says it's a mystery that has now been revealed. So wait a second, Brian. I thought we were going to talk about the church and how the church connects to the Old Testament, particularly Genesis, that we've been studying. Well, I just want you to park that question for a minute and we're going to come back to that. Okay? But before we get to that, I want to point out distinctions between Israel and the church. Because Israel had a beginning and the church had a beginning. You recall, God chose Abraham, one man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, and he made them into a family. That family grew quite large. Grew to 70 people and then that family went down to Egypt. For 400 years they were in Egypt and they grew and they grew and they grew and they became 2 million people. But they still were not a nation. They were just really a very large family. God took them and he rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness and he gave them a constitution. We refer to that as the Mosaic Law or the Mosaic Covenant. It was essentially a constitution to form them into a nation or a theocracy with God as their king and they as his subjects. The theocracy was formed in such a way that God said, according to your constitution, this is how you will relate to one another. This is how you will relate to the nations around you. And this is how you will relate to me. Do you wish to be my chosen people? And the people said, yes, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do, we will enter into this covenant. And on that day, the nation of Israel was born. It became a nation, right? The church also had a beginning, It's beginning was on the day of Pentecost. Recall that Jesus told his followers, I want you to wait for something. I'm I'm going to ascend. I've been raised from the dead, but then I'm going to ascend on high, and I want you to wait, because I'm going to send from heaven the promise of God, and that promise was, recall, the Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Earlier in the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, Jesus had said, the Spirit's not yet given because I am not yet glorified. So... Wait, was the Spirit not around? Of course, we see the Spirit in the Old Testament, don't we? But we don't see the Spirit coming and indwelling people permanently. We would see the Spirit coming upon certain people for a certain task and then departing. The Spirit would come upon kings and prophets and so forth, but they didn't have the guarantee that that Spirit would remain forever. In fact, King David, Psalm chapter 51, after his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah, Called out to God and he said, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I remember when I was in college, uh, we used to sing a song by Keith Green Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And later I realized uh, that's not true for us as a church. I shouldn't be singing that because God doesn't take his Holy Spirit from the Christian. In fact, the mark of being a Christian is possession of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, Paul would say, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. The mark of the church is the Spirit. Spirit came first on the day of Pentecost, was poured out on the apostles, and then poured out on believers subsequently to the point that once the church was established, this was actually the mark of the church, the indwelling, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that began for the church on the day of Pentecost. Now, what that means is, there is no church in the Old Testament and we're not the Israel of the New Testament. We haven't taken on all of those promises that were made to Israel. There are still promises that yet, are yet to be fulfilled for Israel. And we'll talk about that next week. Now, a couple of practical implications of that for us. Um, not all Christians agree with me on that, okay? w- which is fine. But practically, how that plays out, a couple of things you may have noticed, is that uh, we dedicate infants, we don't baptize infants. Why is that? Well, if you go to a Presbyterian church and you're worshiping with Presbyterian believers, they're going to baptize their infants. Why? Well, fundamentally, it's because they believe that the church is Israel, that the church has taken the place of Israel. Because Israel rejected Messiah, God has moved Israel aside and has put the church in its place. And so, just as Israel had a sign of being a part of the covenant community, it was signed was circumcision, and they did circumcision to their infants, just particularly boys, then we need to look for a sign that brings infants into the covenant community. That sign is baptism for them because it's the only ordinance that Jesus issued that they can say this could, this could possibly relate. So we're going to baptize our infants as a sign that they're part of the covenant community or the kingdom of God. We don't do that because simply we don't believe that the church is Israel. So we don't baptize our infants, we dedicate our infants. You'll notice also we don't have the 10 commandments hanging out in the foyer. Why not? Well, because we don't believe that a church exists under the governing structure of the Old Covenant. We believe that we live under the New Covenant, which Jesus Christ inaugurated by his blood. And so there are a lot of principles about God and ourselves that we should learn from the Old Covenant or the Ten Commandments, but we don't live under that as a governing structure. We also believe that there's a future for the nation of Israel that's distinct from the future that relates to the church. Why is that? Because we believe that the church is a mystery. Okay, a mystery form of the kingdom, not revealed beforehand, but now having been revealed. One more thing, but we're not an afterthought. Okay? Just because we are a mystery in terms of Old Testament revelation, it's not as if God suddenly discovered, oh no, the Jews have rejected Messiah and my plan for them. I need to come up with something else. Let's call it the church. Right? Look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 11. This, that is the church was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, the church is not an afterthought. The church is a part of God's eternal plan. Even if we don't see the church specifically in the Old Testament, we are connected. That is our spiritual heritage. How? How does that work? I want you to turn to the book of Galatians now. Galatians chapter 3. One of the most frequently asked questions that I received is, um, how are people in the Old Testament saved as compared to how people in the New Testament are saved? Right? With the assumption that people in the Old Testament were saved in a different way than people in the New Testament. The answer is really simple. People in the Old Testament were saved exactly how people were saved in the New Testament. Okay? Charles Ryrie once created a really uh, neat synthesis of this process that helps us understand how Old Testament and New Testament work together. He said, the basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. The object of faith in every age is God. The content of faith changes in the various dispensations or eras of salvation history. Now let's unpack that for a moment, The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. Only the death of Christ removes the debt of sin. That is the only thing. Writer of the Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove the debt of sin. So why the sacrificial system? Well, it temporarily set aside the debt of sin until that debt would finally be paid for in Christ. And it provided a symbol or an image of the fact that sin requires death. But it didn't completely remove the debt of sin. We're told it atoned for sin, which means literally it covered over. It set it aside until one would come which, who would offer a perfect sacrifice to remove the debt of sin, that is Jesus Christ. And so Old Testament believers lived in anticipation of a final sacrifice. Did they know it was Jesus? No, probably not. But they trusted that God would remove their debt of sin. And so they performed the sacrificial system in hopes that, in anticipation that, God would not just cover over sin, but remove the debt of sin. Okay, so the basis of salvation in every age is always the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. How do we enjoy or experience the fact that a final payment has been made for our sin? By doing good or by having more good that outweighs our bad? No, it's just faith. It's always been faith. It's faith alone. Faith alone in what? Faith alone in God and God's promises. So, The object of faith in every age is God. What saves you? Faith? No, God. God saves you through faith. You believe in God. What do you believe in God? Well, God has progressively revealed more and more and more about himself. So the content of our faith has grown as God has revealed himself. Abraham didn't know everything that Moses knew. Moses didn't know everything that David knew. David certainly didn't know everything that Paul knew. The content grew. Now we know that God has sent his only begotten son who lived on this earth, died a cruel death, but was raised from the dead. And if we believe in God, we have salvation. We have the removal of our debt, the debt of our sins and we have eternal life. Okay? So salvation in the Old Testament, salvation in the New Testament worked exactly the same way. How was Abraham saved? Through faith. In what? The promises that God had revealed to him. He believed God. He took God at his word. Read with me. Chapter 3, Galatians, and verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How did Abraham enter the family of God? Abraham believed. How do we enter the family of God? We believe. Now, interestingly, if you look at the history of Jewish thought, they believe that Abraham got salvation, entered the family of God because he was a righteous man, because he did good. Uh, in many uh, of the, the Judaistic writings, Abraham is referred to as a, a bag of myrrh. Okay. That old bag of myrrh. I mean, it, it's, yeah, I don't, we probably wouldn't use that imagery, but the idea is myrrh is the most precious of spices, and so Abraham is the most precious among the righteous men. He's a fragrance to God. Why? Because he did good works, because he lived a righteous life. Let me illustrate. From Jubilees 23, verse 10, it says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Now, we just finished studying the book of Genesis. Was Abraham perfect in all of his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life? (laughs) The answer is no, right? Uh, I mean, Abraham had some ups and Abraham had some serious downs. But as the Jews would look back at Abraham's life, they would kind of gloss over those negatives and let's say, no, no, no. The reason that Abraham ultimately was saved or put in right relationship with God is because he, he did good works. First Maccabees chapter 2, it says, Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation? And that was credited to him or reckoned unto him as righteousness. Abraham never gave in to sin, and so Abraham was righteous. And Paul says, No, that's not it at all. Abraham was declared righteous by God because Abraham believed. In other words, Abraham is just like us. He's a sinner and needed the grace of God, and he receives the grace of God just because he believes. In the same way, Abraham's physical offspring, the Jews, became part of God's family, not because they were Jews, but because they believed. And so you'll see throughout the Old Testament, there's a discussion of the remnant, That is, those who are physically descended from Abraham, but also follow the faith of Abraham, and they believe. So what made them part of the members of God's family was not Jewish descent, but being Jews and being believers in God. Within the nation of Israel, if you look at the history of the Old Testament, you'll see there are some who believe and some who don't believe. The ones who believe are called the remnant. There are some who don't believe, but they obey the law to keep out of trouble. And some of those who believe, well, we'll be part of God's kingdom someday because we're Jews. When John the Baptist arrived on the scene, he was actually uh, one of the first characters we see in the New Testament, but he's the, the last Old Testament prophet. And he says to the Jewish people, "Okay, don't think you're in just because you're Jews. Matthew chapter three. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, so I say to you, that from these stones, God is able to raise up descendants or seed or offspring, children, to Abraham. Look, God wants to make more people for his family. He can just make, make them out of stone. You're not in because you're a Jew. How are you in? Because you believe. Okay? And that's how we enter in as well. Verse 7. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Now, how does that work for us? who are not Jews? Well, if you grew up in Sunday school, you already know the answer, okay? It was in a song. Remember a song? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. So are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Let's not get too deep into the theology of it. We learned it in Sunday school, right? We got it. I remember even as a kid saying, I don't understand that song, You know, because, uh, wait, Abraham, he just had one son, Isaac. You know, and then I read a little further and realized, no, okay, no, he also had Ishmael. No, he had concubines too. Dad, what are concubines? (laughs) Oh, oh, got it. Uh, He had sons from them too. That's a lot of sons. But then it says, but I'm one of them. So are you. How is it that we can be children of Abraham? Read with me Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises, when you hear the word promises in the New Testament, what do you think? Think Abrahamic covenant. Think Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, okay? So the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say into seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul isn't saying that being Jewish is irrelevant. What he's saying is The ultimate seed of Abraham is just one. It's Jesus. And what you see in the Old Testament is is a narrowing, a focusing. Isaac will be the seed and not Ishmael. Jacob and not Esau. Not Reuben the firstborn, literally, but instead Judah, who was born later. And the focus will narrow and narrow and narrow until it comes to one man, that is Jesus Christ, who will be the perfect Jew. He will live a perfectly righteous life before God. And because he does so, God gives him all of the promises that he made to Abraham. Now, was it absolutely essential that Jesus be a Jew? Of course, because the promises were made to come through Abraham's physical line. But the intention was that through that physical line, all the nations would be blessed. And so the focus narrows in the Old Testament to Jesus. And then Jesus, having received all the promises that were made to Abraham, opens the doors and he says, Now, let the blessing come to all, all nations. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because the promises were intended to come through Abraham and his seed to all people. So, we are distinct from the nation of Israel but we are connected through Abraham. Galatians 3, verse 26. For you all are sons of God through faith, and faith alone in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What does he mean? The meaning of baptism is identification with. To be baptized means to be identified with. The moment that you believe, the Spirit of God identifies you with Christ. That is, clothes you with Christ. The Spirit of God identifies you with God by coming and dwelling inside of you. So you are placed into Christ and the Spirit of God is placed into you. You are now in Christ. The reason that we baptize uh, believers here rather than infants is because it is a symbol of what has happened to you spiritually. The moment that you believe, you are identified with Christ. In his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection, you belong to the body of Christ. So, we put people all the way under the water because that's a symbol of death, complete death. And then we come all the way up out of the water because it's a symbol of resurrection. We are identified with Christ in his death and burial, and we are identified with him in his resurrection. It's a symbol of what has already transpired to us the moment that we believed we belong to Christ, and consequently, we belong to the body of Christ. We are Christians. And so we are distinct from the racial nation of Israel and God's promises specifically that relate to them, but we are related by faith through Abraham and Abraham's perfect seed, that is Jesus Christ. We've been identified with him. The result is God has gathered us as the church to become a new model for humanity, what God originally intended for humanity. I want you to turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. When, when we think about humanity, we, we, we pick up the newspaper, we read, read news online, we, we see what's going on in the world today. I think one of the primary words that comes to our mind is division, okay, divided, separated. Okay, we're divided by, by so many things, by, by race and nationality and language, we're divided by demographic group. We have the, the great generation and then boomers and busters and Gen X and Gen Y and millennials. We, we're, we're, divide, we're divided by politics. Conservatives and liberals and Republicans, Democrats, Libertarian, were divided. Divided by socioeconomic status. We've got rich and poor and middle class. All divisions. And the focus in our culture is so often on the division. Where did that division or that separation begin? Began in the garden. Adam and Eve were created to be one flesh. Right? Two, Two people... Who become one. One family. But after sin, what happened? Well, there there was separation. There was division between Adam and Eve. There was conflict. There was alienation. And that alienation was transmitted down to their offspring. So much so that their first two sons, one killed the other. There's division. There's separation. And it got worse and it got worse and it got worse. So much so that God flooded the earth and he started over. With Noah and his family. And the generations after Noah attempted to overcome the the separation, but in their own strength and for their own glory. That's the story of the Tower of Babel. Men and women who are separate, trying to come together and overcome their separation and as a consequence, glorify themselves, not God. And God looks down and he sees their, their attempt at reconciliation. He said, no, what's actually happening now is they're becoming more and more and more rebellious against me. I'm gonna have to scatter them. So God scattered them. He confused their languages and the, the separations among people became more and more and more deeply embedded in peoples and cultures through language. But God's intention for humanity is that we would be One. That we'd we'd be one family because we are all made in the image of God. And so God began his program of recreating and regenerating humanity by picking out one man. Remember Abraham? Abraham and his wife. And to begin with, he had to separate Abraham, have Abraham live differently and distinctly. one of the the tools of, of making these people distinct as a people of God so that others would see what God is like and be drawn into this new humanity, one of the tools was the law. The way the Jews practiced the law created further and further division, right? The way they practiced the law made God almost inaccessible. In fact, there were literally barriers erected in the temple, And once God allowed a temple to be built for his worship in Jerusalem, there were barriers that separated Jew from Gentile. The word Gentile simply means not a Jew. From the Old Testament perspective, there are just two peoples. There's Jews and everybody else. And everybody else is behind the wall. Literally in the first century, there was a wall that was built and there was an inscription in stone on that wall and said, if you're a Gentile and you cross over this barrier, you will die. You can only get so close to worship of God. The women could get a little closer. But even they were second class. They had to stop at another barrier. The Jewish men, they could take a few steps closer. Then they had to stop. The Levites, that one tribe, they could get a little bit closer. But then they had to stop. Then the high priest, once a year, could actually go into the presence of God. And so the entire worship in Israel was one of barriers. And what Christ did is he knocked down those barriers and he made access to God equal for everyone. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles, in the flesh. Verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. Having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the barrier, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. When we speak of one new man, we normally think of ourselves, right? The new man is, it's me, I'm new in Christ. But what Paul is talking about in Ephesians is us, not me, not you, but us. What he's saying is Jesus Christ literally broke down that wall. The veil of the temple was split in two and Christ made access to God equal for everyone. At the foot of the cross, we all bend the knee. We all are laid low. Or as Paul says in the book of Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not saying that there's no meaning to these distinctions, right? He's not saying, well, men and women are both the same. No, Paul's not an idiot, right? He, he, even Ephesians 5, he talks about the differences within marriage. He'll talk about differences within the church Between male and female and culture, he understands that and recognizes that. He's not saying that the the distinctions are meaningless. What he's saying is that in Christ, those distinctions don't have to be barriers any longer. They are overcome by the church. Because we are one in Christ. And so instead, those those differences can be celebrated because we're unified in Christ. Let me say it another way. The goal of the church is not to gather a group of diverse people and try to make us all one. Let me say that again. The goal of the church is not to try to gather a diverse group of people and somehow make us one. The goal of the church is to pursue Christ and proclaim Christ. And in the process, we become one. Because we are pursuing Christ together, we are proclaiming Christ together, we become one. And then we can actually celebrate the things that are different among us because we see God has put within the body different people, different personalities, different races, different cultures, and those are not a cause for a barrier. They're a cause for celebration because God has uniquely equipped each person to worship in a special way and to reach out and bear witness in a special way to proclaim Christ to people that others can't reach. That is part of the beauty of the mosaic of the body of Christ It's not a barrier, it's part of our beauty. And so our goal that we pursue is not unity, our goal that we pursue is Jesus. And when we all are pursuing Jesus together, that's what makes us one. So it is the church and the church only that can transcend all of these barriers and put before humanity a new model, which is what God intended us to be. Specifically, the church transcends nationality. You will notice we do not have a U.S. flag on stage. Why is that? Because the church doesn't belong to the United States. Hey, look around you. There are people from different nations worshiping God. We are the church. Church doesn't stand up on a Sunday morning cross their, put their hand on their heart, and Tim says, all right, you can be seated. Let's stand and greet, and then let's say the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. We don't do that. Church doesn't bend the knee before the flag of the United States of America. We don't, not as a church. As a citizen, if you're a U.S. citizen, to be a good citizen, you should pledge your loyalty to your country, and you should be loyal to your country after you're loyal to God, right? So the church doesn't pledge allegiance to the flag. If anything, U.S. citizens should bend their knee for Jesus Christ. Right? The hope of the world is not a particular nation. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. I believe this is a, a great nation. I believe that we can do great good. But we, as a nation, are not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the church that transcends nations. church transcends Race, gender, status. There is no place for any form of elitism within the church. I am not better than anyone. Because of my race, because of the language that I speak, because of, of the, the money that I make, or the house I live in, the car I drive, I'm not better. There's no place for elitism. There's certainly no place for racism because we are all one in Christ. We respect people in the body of Christ even with our differences. Why? Because we're one in Christ. We respect people outside the church equally because they're creatures made in the image of God just as we are. The hope of the world to transcend the divisions that are caused by race is... The church. The church can do what no social program can do, what no government agency can do, what no privately funded organization can do because we can become unified in Christ. The church transcends political parties. God's not the sole possession of the Republicans or the possession of the Democrats. That's not the party of God or this is the party of God. God doesn't bend the knee to a political party. I love the story at the beginning of the book of Joshua, where Joshua is walking along the Jordan River and he looks up and he sees a man. And the man is kind of scary. He's terrifying, in fact. It's the angel of the Lord, Lord the, the angel who commands the armies of the Lord. And Joshua looks at him and he kind of braces for battle and he says, Okay, whose side are you on? Are you on our side or are you on the side of our enemy? And the angel of the Lord of hosts, the one who commands God's army, says, You're missing the point. I'm only on God's side. <laughs> it's not that I'm for you or for your enemies, I'm for God. So who are you for, Joshua? Who are you going to bend the knee before? God doesn't bend his knee to any particular political party. Parties should, individuals who are running under a particular party should bend their knee to Jesus Christ. But ultimately, a political party is not the hope of the United States or the hope of the world. The hope of the world is the church. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. Now, men and women, should we be engaged in the political process? Absolutely. As good citizens, we should vote for people who have godly values. We should take advantage of that opportunity as citizens, but not believe that a party can save our country or save the world. What will save the world is when Christians get engaged in politics, in education, in medicine, in commerce, and they get engaged as Christians and they do their jobs excellently as unto the Lord, and they show what Jesus is like in all of these different arenas. If I can put it another way, we should not get involved in politics in order to make life easier for Christians. We should get involved in politics to show people what Jesus is like in politics, what Jesus is like in education, what Jesus is like in, in, in commerce and in medicine and all of these fields, because the hope of the world is that people trust in Jesus Christ and they have eternal life and then they know that they will live forever with God and their entire value system has changed and they live for Jesus as well. That's the hope of the world. Church overcomes Denominations. The church should be divided when there's heresy or when there's immorality within the church. But when we are one in Christ, we must be one. And one of the things that, that, that shows that the church is not healthy is when we are so divided by denominations. But if someone is a believer in Jesus Christ, that is, they trust that Jesus is the Son of God, God made flesh, who literally lived on the earth, who died a cruel death but was raised from the dead. And if I believe in him and only him, I have eternal life. That person is my brother my sister in Christ, and we can be one. And we should be one. It is the church that overcomes these things. It is the church that is the hope of the world. And when I was little, I learned, I learned a little jingle. Like this, we had to link our fingers together, right? And we like this. Here's, here's the church. Do you remember this, right? Here's the church, here's the steeple open the doors and see all the people. You know, that was neat. And, you know, and then I had kids, and I was like, ah, that's heresy. <laughs> I need to change that for my kids. So I, I retaught it to him. I said, here's a building. Sometimes it has a steeple. Sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> open the doors and see the church. Right? And mine never caught on, and, you know, it, it <laughs> My kids, know. if you asked them now, they wouldn't remember it. They'd remember, here's the church, here's Steve Allen. But no, that's heresy. Here, here, here's a building. Here's a building, right? And right now, the church is trapped inside the building. Let's let them loose. You didn't come to church. You are the church. We are the church. And we are one. No matter where we're from, no matter what language we speak, no matter what a political party we affiliate with, we're one because we are in Christ and that's the hope of the world the church is the hope of the world you are the hope of the world final point we are also partners in abraham's calling turn to 2 corinthians chapter 5 2 corinthians chapter 5 you will recall that at the end of the promises made to abraham god said this and you abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed abraham this is a promise I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Why? Why why am I going to do that for you, Abraham? So that you can sit back and enjoy my blessings and say, oh, I just love being blessed. No, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can turn around and be a blessing to all the nations. That's why I've chosen you. Not to just enjoy the blessings, but to share the blessings. That was the calling of Abraham. That is the calling of the church. We share in Abraham's calling. That is how we are linked together. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Or as Paul said in verse 16, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. We don't even regard anyone according to the flesh. We don't, we don't worry about those things that are external. Are they meaningless? No, they're not meaningless, but we can actually celebrate them. But if a person's in Christ, that's the most important thing about a person. Is that man or woman in Christ or outside of Christ? At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Do they know Jesus? Do they have eternal life or do they not? If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creature. So we don't regard them according to the flesh externally any longer. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely... That God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us, to us, the word of reconciliation. What is your calling? The next verse he says you're an ambassador to take the, the, the word of reconciliation to all tribes, tongues, people, and nation. That's your calling. To be a minister of reconciliation, an ambassador of reconciliation. First, reconciling people to God teaching them, praying for them, serving them so that they can have eternal life. So how do we apply this? I have one simple application for us this morning. The the plan of God in human history, it's like this raging river. It's our our calling, it's our privilege to step into that river and go with God, go with the flow. Where's that flow going? Flow is going toward the blessing of all nations. This is what God is about. This is his purpose, that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, through us. So, just one one application, one question for you this week. Who will you bless? I want you to think as we close about one person that you can pray for, that you can serve, that you can share Jesus with. One person that you will pass along the blessings of Christ to this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have opened our hearts and minds to know the blessing that was given to Abraham is available to us through Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you that we know that we have eternal life. That we know that our debt of sins is forgiven. And I pray, Father, that we wouldn't be comfortable simply in enjoying your blessing, but that we would step out into this world in in every arena. In our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in politics and education and commerce and medicine, in all of these areas, we would live as one for Christ to share the blessing of Christ because that is the hope of the world. Father, let us be a blessing in Christ this week. It's in his name we pray, amen. God bless you and be a blessing this week. See you next week.